2 Samuel 23, verses 13 through 17. Then three of the thirty chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam. And a troop of Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These men, these things were done by the three mighty men. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for history that is just filled with wisdom for us. We ask you, Lord, to open our ears to these, uh, the wisdom of these events that occurred so long ago. Please uh, bless us with the presence of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. If you happened to be worshiping at Trinity Presbyterian Church 10 years ago, this might be familiar to you. <laughs> the uh, title of the message is uh, Philistines Among Us. What we read is obviously a recap. If you look at Second uh, Samuel 23, you'll notice the title is David's Last Words. And so what we're talking about here are things that are being reflected upon as David is on his deathbed. This appears nowhere else, this story about these three men and their trip to this well in Bethlehem at the risk of their lives. And... Uh, when I, what I choose to speak on when I get up here is usually just what I find most interesting from the word. So long ago when I was reading this, it appealed to me. I thought, wow, this is amazing. And so uh, I developed a message around it. And let me first give you the context of this message because really the, the text doesn't give us a whole lot. I'm going to give you the context, the, the, the time frame within which this took place a little background on the Philistines, and then we'll talk about why, when and why things happened during this period, talk about David's life at the time, and then uh, draw examples from this particular text, you know, what it is these men evinced by their action and also David by his. So first, the Philistines. Uh, the Philistines are one of the sea peoples that are mentioned in Scripture, uh, the Bible talks about there being sea peoples, and they come upon the scene rather quickly. They probably uh, landed in the land of along the Mediterranean Sea, uh, southern, south, uh, western Israel, around 1200 B.C. or so. We don't know much about them before that. It's likely that they uh, emanated from uh, Asia Minor or even one of the islands in the Mediterranean, but they were a seafaring people, made their living on the sea, and uh, somewhat Viking too, you know, they tended to pillage and plunder as they went around the sea, but they were also farmers. They had failed in an attempted invasion of Egypt. Egypt had repelled them, and so then they settled along that desert area, now known as Gaza. And this is land 
that God had promised to the Israelites hundreds of years before, but they hadn't fully taken it. They hadn't eliminated the peoples, nor had they occupied it. And so these Philistines found this land, and they settled there. They're one of the few non-Semitic tribes that were uh, enemies of Israel during this time. Most of the tribes that Israel fought were like them. Amorites, Moabites, Amalekites, all of these people were like them. But the uh, Philistines were different. They were pagan to the core, not that some of the others weren't as well, but uh, they at least had come from a different beginning. But the uh, Philistines had a, a god called Dagon. This was the fish god. So this was the god that would make their fishing trips result in success. They also worshipped a fertility god, Asherah. And so later you hear that a lot if you're familiar with reading the Old Testament, uh, the Asherah poles that were all over Israel. That was a fertility goddess. And then also they worshipped, they're the ones that brought in Baals. And Baals are kind of like Hinduism. There wasn't just one Baal, there were lots of Baals. There was a god of this, god of that. And so the Baal that they tended to worship was one that would bring rain because they settled in a part of the land that really they couldn't irrigate, and so they were heavily dependent on rain coming at the right time, and it doesn't rain a whole lot there. They had rich land, but just you know the rain would sometimes fail them. So their weaponry was advanced. They had iron weapons, even when they landed there in 1200 BC. Um, many of the other peoples of the day had only bronze and copper weapons, but they did have this good... Uh, well-defendable land. The land is relatively flat, maybe maybe rolling. And what's nice about that, if you're a Philistine, is you can build at the top of a hill that's maybe no more than 50, 100 feet high, and yet you could see everybody coming for miles around. So they would build these very defendable forts. They were also on trade routes. That, that area is a trade route. So they immediately became a force to deal, to contend with in this area. They settled there. They had enough peoples to take it and uh, uh, build a people there. And uh, then for a thousand years, really, their effects have been felt. And does anybody know what the term Palestinian is derived from? Philistines. And so the Palestinians essentially persist to this day. If you, uh, maybe in concept only, I don't know that the peoples themselves have, but at least the concept has. So that's a brief history of the Philistines, this time that we're living in, they have already been fighting Israel for a couple of hundred years under the, under the time of the judges and all through Saul's reign as king. And so now we have David coming into the scene and he's continuing to have to deal with the Philistines. David himself is hiding in what's called the cave of Adullam or the stronghold or the refuge. And he was hiding from Saul as he often had to do during this terrible time. So the hills there are riddled with caves, and he wasn't hiding alone. He had hundreds of men hiding with him. So obviously these caves are big, many of them big, defendable. There are two views among scholars as to when this took place, uh, they're, and they're very different. They're 15 years apart. So the first time is pretty much early in David's life, just after the arrows uh, issue where Jonathan shot the arrows and told David to flee. The other is uh, much later when he has been made king of Israel and he takes Jerusalem. These, these uh, episodes are 15 years apart. I myself favor the former. Because it's just a little illusion here, it's really kind of hard to place it in context. 
But yet, for many things, I would say that this occurred early in David's life. So now the Philistines have moved into the land. And now let's first take a little uh, segue and say, what is it that the Philistines are doing there? And why is it that God would do this? First, note in verse uh, 13, the very first verse. Then three of the 30 chief men went down at harvest time and came to David. And the Philistines were camped and camped in the valley of Rephaim. Rephaim. Uh, so you could see that it's harvest time. So now why would the Philistines come at harvest time? They want to harvest. <laughs> They're there to basically, you remember that grasshopper and ants movie that was recently popular. That's pretty much what they were doing. They were the grasshoppers. Let the ants collect all the food. They come swoop in, take all the food. So that's what they were trying to do. And uh, long ago when I, when I read this, it reminded me of this little cartoon I once saw. And, and I forget the guy's name, but there's a, there's a cartoonist that does that Viking. And, and one of those cartoons showed the Vikings in like a Viking training course. And the one guy is remonstrating them before they go out on a mission to say, now remember to pillage before you plunder. And so pillaging, I guess, is taking stuff, and plundering is both taking and destroying what you can't take. So he's reminding them that that's their goal there. Don't destroy the stuff before we fill our boats with it. Uh, Saul, what's he doing? What do you think he's doing? He's chasing after David, of course. You know, Who cares that he has a kingdom to reign over? He wants this David dead. So he's obsessed. He's paranoid about David. And so he is off seeking David to kill him. So now this is analogous to us in the Christian church. While the enemies are taking our cities, taking our country, we're fighting amongst ourselves. So there are analogies that I'll kind of sprinkle throughout this message. So now let's get to the point of why. Why has this occurred? And I believe the answer is given us in Judges. And uh, Mary alluded this earlier in a uh, letter to us. Uh, she and John were talking about training up the young men in our congregation. Judges 2, beginning at verse 20, and I'll read up through early in uh, Judges chapter 3. This is starting at Judges 2.20. Now it says, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. That's because under the judges they kept obeying, disobeying, obeying, disobeying, just kind of doing their own thing. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore, the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. Now, these are the nations which the Lord left that he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. Namely, five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hema. And they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So why 
were the Philistines left as a thorn in the side of the Israelites? Three reasons. They're all given here. In verses 20 to 21, it speaks of the anger of the Lord, and he is punishing people at that time. In verse 22, so that through them I might test Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord. And so he's testing them. And in verse 2 of chapter 3, we saw that he is testing them. He's training them in war. He's training the young people who have never known war in war. So the reasons that he has allowed the Philistines in this land, punishment, testing, training. And again, God hasn't changed his methods. God is the same forevermore. And so he uses those same methods with us. And those methods are active in our world. The Philistines are loose in America. We, in our society, in our day, know things that the Philistines were experiencing in their day. I talked about their gods. And uh, we have these terms, such as pro-choice and new age and homosexuality, things like this. Well, if you think of that, all of these things can get collapsed down into the words that God calls them. Now, he does refer to some of these words, but also God, pro-choice, murderers. New Age, idolaters. Homosexuals, sodomites. So all of the terms that we will give, and you know, thousands of terms we could give, they all kind of funnel down to some variant of sin that God has a better label for. And so we should always think that way, think in terms of God bringing them down to the proper labels. Now the Philistines, just as in that day, just as in that day when they were destroying homes and landing on the shore and taking the land and plundering and pillaging, uh, they do it today. They're in our homes, they're in our communities, they're in our nation. They're, they are a part of our present and our future. They're a reality that we must deal with. And we should deal with them just as God had instructed the Israelites to deal with them properly. Now, too, they have taken high places. Just as the Philistines of that day took high places, they've taken our high places. They've taken our uh, uh, government positions, government roles. They've taken uh, authority across the board in terms of uh, big business and in, in, uh, government officials, uh, pretty much anything that you can look at. Uh, all the universities have been taken over by the Philistines. And very few universities, even those that are dedicated to God, are quickly taken over by Philistines. It's just incredible how much power can be wielded when we sacrifice our borders, when we don't defend what it is that we should be defending. But, but the hopeful is that life isn't about the Philistines. The Bible wasn't written about the Philistines. They actually just disappear from Scripture at a point in time, and we never hear from them again. That's why I say that we must take the correlation between uh, Philistines and Palestinians with a grain of salt, because I'm just really not sure that that's true. Now, there are people that perhaps have carried that forward in oral tradition, but I just don't know that that's true myself. I believe God may have just wiped them out as, as he did that. Now, of course, there are other Philistines waiting to spring up, other quote-unquote Philistines. So, life, though, is about, and let me turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians 6, verses 8 through 10. No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. So the uh, story of history is always going to be about victory, about the victors. When we uh, move forward through time and we look back, we always see the predominance upon victory. That is what we uh, elevate, and that is what God will elevate. One day in heaven, we'll look back on the earth, and all of our enemies will just be a vapor, a blink in, in the time on earth that we've spent here. So let's not uh, confuse the moral issues of this world with our duty to God. They're different. Yes, an outgrowth of our moral duty to God is to fight the evils of this world. But, but there's more. Just as the Philistines uh, lived in the heart of ancient Israel, the Philistines live in the heart of our land, and they live in our hearts. They will perpetually hold that place in our heart. But the difference between a believer and an unbeliever in this earth is this. David was living in a cave, right? He was in the cave of Adullam. He and his men were in the cave. Saul was out and free and roaming the land. But Christ has reversed the role. Christ has made David to escape the cave, and now his enemies are in the hidey holes. And that's the situation we're in, and that's the situation we're personally in. So if you are a believer... You have evil in your heart, but yet that evil is in the hidey holes. And you need to be keeping him there. You need to be seeking him out and fighting him when he tries to escape. And yet, we might not be as diligent in doing that from day to day, week to week, as we need to be. And so sin can escape that hidey hole, move into more, move more and more out into the open. And that's what will happen. Uh, let me read a quote from John Owen. Every sin increases the principle and fortifies the habit of sinning. It is an evil treasure that increases by doing evil. And where does this evil treasure lie? It is in the heart. There it is laid up. There it is kept in safety. All the men in the world, all the angels in heaven, cannot dispossess a man of this treasure. It is so safely stored in the heart. Here dwells our enemy. This is the fort, the citadel of this tyrant. Where it maintains a rebellion against God all of our days. It is like an enemy in war whose strength and power lie not only in his numbers and force of men in arms, but also in the unconquerable forts that he does possess. That is our heart. This is the role that God has prescribed for the, uh, that, that he did prescribe for the Philistines in ancient Israel. He gave them those forts on the hills that were difficult for the Israelites to take. They didn't take that ground when it was available to them. They waited, they waited, they waited. They disobeyed. And so then God thought, well, okay, if you're not going to take that ground, I'm going to give the ground to your enemies. And then you won't take it nearly as easily as you could have. And this is what has happened in our country. We had this 
at one point. We've given it all back. We've given it to the enemy. And so now it's going to be much harder to gain back that ground, but that's what God would call us to do. So the Philistines are here to punish us for our sins, to test our faith, and to build godly character within us. And so you are tested in this every day, just as I am. We are tested by everything that we do. For instance, um, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17 talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. All of these things are the Philistines jabbing us and poking us and wanting us to be distracted from our duties. And we must suppress that. We must overcome that. We must, through the power of the gospel, through reading the word, through uh, praying the word, and through mostly obedience, doing what it is that we know we need to do. Um, God doesn't even call us to be uh, obedient constantly. I mean, he does call us to that, but yet so little obedience can go such a long way in this world. But we just give it up. We give it up as impossible, and therefore we allow sin to escape the holes and begin to take over our lives. And yet we need to fight against that. So now, this began with text from Second Samuel, and we'll go back there. Uh, we talked about the Philistines. We talked a little bit about uh, how that applies to us this day. But let's go back to this text, and uh, let's talk about David. 2 Samuel 23, verse 13. Now, again, I've mentioned two different time frames where this could have happened, and I choose the former. I believe it was when David was much younger. It's when he's just escaped Jonathan. What happened about that time? Um, the priests of Nob get killed when uh, Doeg the Edomite hears of D David's escaping, and then David escapes to uh, 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 Achish and Gath, and he feigns madness. All of these things are occurring around this time. David has surrounded himself with all of these disaffected men. There are like 400 men that are calling him their leader. And uh, he has actually sent his family, his, his parents, brothers, whoever would go, I guess, to Moab. He had talked to the king of Moab and had them all sent there. And yet he's so young, and yet his, Saul wants him dead. He wants his family dead. And he is so young, and yet he's coming under all of this pressure. Now, too, he had been married. He had married Saul's daughter, Michal. And remember, he, when he fought Goliath, one of the promises that had been made was that he would give him his daughter. But David refused. David said, just because I killed Goliath, I can't marry your daughter. I, I'm not worthy to be your son-in-law. And yet Saul wanted some control, and so he persisted. And he gave his older daughter, it was actually Mirab that he gave to uh, another man. That's who he was going to give to David. But then Saul heard that Michal loved David. So he thought, aha. So he uh, talked to his men, found this out, and he made a challenge. And he said, well, David, you know, this is no, uh, no small thing. Uh, I want 100 Philistine foreskins. So David went and got 200 and brought them back and bought this wife for this weird, uh, you know, dowry, I guess, their gift to the, to the, to the dad. But uh, he'd bought, he'd earned her. And so she had come into his home and they loved each other. And yet she has been taken from him by Saul having run her out. So, or run him out. And now he actually gives his wife to another man. So the Philistines are desecrating their homeland 
uh, David has had to live in these holes. He's had his wife taken from him. He has the responsibility of caring for all of these men, providing for them. And he's tired of fighting. It's about this time that he's thought to have written Psalm 142, and there's a reference in Psalm 120. Maybe he wrote that then too. In 120, he says, I'm a man of peace, but when I speak, there are for war. But Psalm 142 is incredible. Let me, let me read that to you. Psalm 142. It's uh, seven verses. A contemplation of David, David, a prayer when he was in the cave. I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord, I make my supplication. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path in the way in which I walk. They have secretly set a snare for me. Look on my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. So he both gives his lament, and yet he gives his confidence that God will overcome in the end. Now, that's David. That's his present state. Let's look at these three men and what they did. Again, it's 2 Timothy 23. So he uh, speaks his heart out loud, and he mentions that he would like this water. David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. Now, who knows whether he really intended anyone to try to do this. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. So now, uh, Bethlehem is about 12 miles away from where these caves are. And this is not like us walking out to West O. I mean, this is rocky, hilly terrain, and it's filled with the enemy. The Philistines are everywhere. They are in Bethlehem. Many, many uh, people think that they had made Bethlehem uh, a part of their um, uh, like logistics supply line. And so there were, there were soldiers there that were defending this territory. But this is his boyhood home. This is where David grew up. And so he remembers the sweetness of this water. But yet look how they loved him. They take these risks and endure hardships just to bring him a moment's pleasure. And I have a couple quotes here. No man is more despised than a poor commander, and yet no man is more loved than a good commander. And so especially in times of war where you're facing life and death every day, um, there develops this camaraderie, and you elevate your leader to this position of honor. And uh, if he is unworthy of it, of course, he might be killed by his own men in a, in a heated battle. But if he's worthy of it, oh, you know, they do everything for him. March into battle. That's, that's the picture that we have here. So D David, over the time that he's led them, has demonstrated himself time and again that he is a good, good leader. So no man is more loved than this man. And uh, how little these three men feared the Philistines, or at least allowed this fear to incapacitate them. Bethlehem was far away, uh, and yet love outweighs this. 
if you think about David and Goliath, um, this is where I think this comes into face. Fear is there. Fear is always there. It's not like you can just become Superman and overcome all fear because you're you're uh, impregnable yourself, I- invincible. That's not the case. You overcome your fear for some greater goal, some goal that you've established. And so that's what David did with Goliath. He overcame his fear because he was just so offended for the glory and honor of God. And here we have his men who have overcome their fear to demonstrate their loyalty to their king. Now, we must learn from this example. We must hazard our all for our king. Our God, over and over again, has showed us that he is worthy of a position of honor in our lives. And so we should learn by these men's example. Now, the puzzling thing, the, really th- the thing that you have to wonder what went through these men's minds is when David poured it out. He, they took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it but poured it out to the Lord. I have four points to make about this action of David in pouring this water out. First, he's a good leader, right? He's a leader of all these men, and yet by his doing this, he has admitted that he has made a mistake. The first thing he does is he publicly admits that he's made an error here because leaders need to be careful of their words, and he was careless with his words. He spoke his heart, And some of his men took that to heart in doing this. And yet, uh, he was so loved by them that he couldn't rebuke them. He rebuked himself. But like Saul, who was once small in his own eyes and then elevated himself, or like Felix in the the book of Acts, uh, where he tells uh, uh, Paul, when I find it convenient, I will send for you, these leaders move into a position of, of uh, what's the word, a psychological word, uh, emotional um, fragility or something like that. But that's where David is. That's the place he is. He, he's been moved to a, a, a moment of transparency, to a moment of, of uh, weakness or what could be perceived as weakness. And yet he doesn't allow that to just drive him. He does what's right. He admits error. He admits very quickly that he was wrong to have done what he did. And he demonstrates love for his men because it was their lives that were risked in order to accomplish this. And he couldn't couldn't honor them for that without then having a hundred other guys wanting to do it as well. And so he wasn't going to uh, have this to become some kind of uh, competition. So he essentially tells them, don't do it again. I admit my error. I don't want you doing this again. And he denied himself this pleasure. I I, I don't believe that he didn't want to drink that water. He wanted to drink that water. That water was precious to him. And yet, he poured it out to God. And that, to me, is the most interesting thing. Uh, He pours it out to God. And so what did that action mean? It meant more than just him not partaking of it. It meant more than just him not accepting this uh, from his men. It pointed them to God, one higher than him. Now, what earthly leader do you know that when is thrust into a position like this will instead point you to God? Not 
take that honor, not take that glory to himself, but he points it to God. So now uh, we must also, as we raise children, for instance, I I, I told a a lady recently that, and, and her children, that really to our children, we are gods to them. That's how God has designed it. We are God on earth for them. And younger children don't realize we're not God until, you know, a little bit later in life. And then kind of once they've dethroned us, you know, sometimes we never come anywhere close to that in their minds again. But uh, there is truth in that, 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 yes, they look up to us, they honor us, they do all these things. And yet that goes to some parents' heads. We think that we can maintain that role throughout life. No, no, no. Our our job is to is to be that for the children, to live up to their expectations of us. But then when they start perceiving our failures, which comes, we start, then start pointing them to God. Say, you know, don't look at me only. I am pointing you to God. All of my successes, you must consider God's. All of my failures, you must consider mine. Just like a good leader, any good leader would tell. So that's what we must do as parents. So now, we know why the Philistines are in our lands and in our hearts, but what are we going to do about it? And what we do about it is we fight. We do exactly what God had trained these Israelites to do. They did not know war, and he had to make them learn war. And so if we don't know war, it's our own fault because we've had the Philistines among us our whole lives. Now, after hundreds of years of the Philistines really running roughshod over portions of the Israelite population, and they uh, did devastation during Saul's reign. I mean, you can't read the life of Saul without the Philistine armies are just intertwined there. He was fighting the Philistines all the time. But David conquered them. You don't hear about the Philistines after David. David conquered them, and he subjugated them. And so, uh, to me, again, that's a picture of David, a man after God's own heart, as harnessing that evil and putting it in its place. And that's what we're to do. That's the picture for us. We are to take that evil that's in us, the Philistines that war in our hearts, and, and cram it into the caves. We can't kill it, but we should control it. We should subjugate it and subject it to God's word. Subjected, and yet it's something that will just spring up every day, just like weeds. So we must do this. Uh, David was tired. I, I chronicled how he was depressed and all this, but yet through the power of God, he continued to uh, live up to the expectations that others placed upon him. But more importantly, he lived up to God's expectations of him. Let me give you another quote by John Owen. Giving way to the law of sin in the least is giving strength to it. To let it alone is to let it grow. Not to conquer it is to be conquered by it. We must always be fighting. There is no alternative. There is never a truce with sin. There is, this is another quote from Owen, there is no way for us to pursue sin in its unsearchable habitation but by being endless in our pursuit. David conquered the Philistines of his day, and we must conquer ours. Let us remember this. Every act of sin that you commit is a fruit of being weary of God, weary of his blessing of you, weary of his place in your life. So when we sin, we are casting off uh, God's 
right to rule us, all of his many blessings, all of what we've prayed about today. And so uh, when we sin, we must take it to the Lord immediately and admit that we are in rebellion against him by uh, incorporating the sin into our lives. So let's not make room for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for David, whose life is an example and a picture to us of someone who uh, considers themselves as inconsequential and considers you as uh, everything on this earth. So, Lord, we pray that you would make us to understand that we are nothing, that you are everything, that uh, the more we elevate ourselves, the more you will have to debase us and knock us off of our pedestals. We pray, Lord, for your power in conquering uh, sin in our hearts and in our land. Lord, we cannot be perfect. We cannot uh, achieve perfection on this earth. And yet we must continue to do our best as citizens, as uh, parents. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, motivate us to serve you, motivate us to please you, and to put your glory above uh, all things in our lives. Thank you, Father, for this day. We ask you, Lord, to be with us now and dismiss us with your peace as we go our ways. In Christ's name, amen.